So we're reading 2 Kings chapter 8, 1 to 15. The Shumanites' land restored is the heading. Now Elisha said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appeared to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that has been hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus, Ben-Haddon, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazel, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God. The and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has, been, has, has said to me, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Azeel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open the pregnant women. And Azeel said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that he, you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazel became king in his place. Thank you, Maria. Uh, be really good <coughs> to keep your Bible open there at uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 8. If you're visiting, uh, you've been away for a while, we are making our way uh, through some of the stories around the prophet Elisha and uh, what his work and God's work through him in Israel. And this is what we're up to today. Uh, kids, younger people, smaller people, um, there is an outline that you should have got on your way in with some questions on there. Uh, hopefully that helps you to follow along. Uh, where we're going today. Uh, that'd be good. Let's, uh, let's pray before we get into this passage. <clears throat> uh, Lord God, we do want to thank you uh, that you speak to us. Thank you that you uh, spoke these words many, many years ago uh, to your people. 
I thank you that you enabled them or caused them to be preserved throughout, uh, throughout centuries. And thank you that we have that word today. Thank you for the freedom we have to read it. Uh, thank you for this time and this place to, uh, to study it together. But Lord, we pray, uh, Father, for the work of your Holy Spirit. In my speaking, in our listening, uh, and most of all, Lord, in our hearts, uh, that you would be at work through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with anticipation? Uh, how do you deal, uh, no, deal knowing that there is something uh, big just around the corner? Uh, kids, younger people, uh, how, do you, how do you cope when your birthday uh, is coming close? Do you get all jittery? All excited? Do you run around a lot just to expand all that energy? The night before, do you, do you go to bed especially early uh, so that your birthday will just come out a little bit quicker? Do you wake up at 4.30 in the morning excited, bouncing around? Maybe there'll be, maybe there'll be a present for you. Mums and dads, bigger people, grown-ups. Uh, how do you deal with anticipation? Uh, how, do, how do you deal with something Something really, really good that is going to come. How, how do you deal with uh, your wedding day just around the corner? Uh, are you nervous? Are your palms sweaty? Do the days just drag on? Do you get overheated? Do you get cold? How, how do you deal? Uh, how, how do you deal uh, knowing that uh, the kids are about to go back to school after the holidays? <laughs> do you get all excited? All jumpy. How do you cope when there's, when there's something daunting just around the corner? Uh, when there's a surgery date uh, getting closer and closer. When you're about to say goodbye to a loved one. When you're about to begin a new phase of life. That will be difficult and hard. How do you cope? Through as we've been going through these stories of Elisha, there has been a very real sense of anticipation about them. Uh, something big we know is about to happen, is about to come. Uh, we have been waiting uh, for something actually terrible to happen. Because right at, the, right at the start, right at the time when Elisha was first mentioned and when Elisha was called, God had promised that through Elisha, he would bring a sword. He would bring judgment to his king and he would bring judgment to his people. Now, we've, we've seen some glimpses of that as we've made our way through, haven't we? Uh, you remember... You remember Gehazi, the, the, servant, the servant of Elisha? And he has the judgment of leprosy uh, put upon him for the things that he does. Uh, we have seen uh, judgment, in a sense, on the king as well uh, pronounced. We saw judgment last week on the captain of the guard as he was, he was trampled to death. We have had these little glimpses of this judgment to come, but it hasn't come yet. In fact, on the whole, God's been 
relatively nice, considering all this judgment is coming. I mean, people have been fed uh, miraculously. Uh, Children have been raised from the dead. The city has been rescued. Uh, Food has been provided for starving lepers. Um, God has been actually very nice in this. So where is this judgment? Well, today we reach the point where we are transitioning. Transitioning from God's uh, signs and display of grace, of compassion, uh, signs which have called people to repent, called people to turn back to God, and we're transitioning into the time of judgment. It is coming. It is here. And what we want to focus on this morning is we have a look at these, uh, these 15 verses. We want to have a look at a little bit at the judgment that is to come. But we want to focus most specifically on the God who brings that judgment. And on how we live with its coming and with its anticipation. Because we need to admit that the judgment of God is not just something of the past. It's not just something on the pages of history. God's judgment is a thing of today. God's judgment is coming when Jesus returns. So notice as we made our way through this passage that it's divided into two sections. First of all, there's the dealings with the woman of Shunem. Uh, And then there's the dealings with Haziel. We're going to look at both of these uh, two parts in turn. And let's start then with verses uh, 1 to 6, which deal with the woman of Shunem. Uh, You remember her, of course, don't you, from chapter 4. She was a standout figure in a whole uh, series of miracles uh, which were performed through Elisha in Israel. Uh, She was the woman who uh, had that little room built for Elisha so that uh, as he was making his way through her her town, uh, he could stay the night and spend a little bit of time. Uh, She was the one that uh, Elisha asked what she needed and, and, well, Gehazi said, well, she needs a child. And uh, he, he miraculously said, God will provide this within a year. She was the one who then who then lost that son to sickness. But she was also the one whom whom God restored her son to life uh, once again through Elisha. Now, we, we are provided with lots of reminders here that she's the one whose son was raised to life, restored to life. You notice that as we read through it, it, it says it about four times. Uh, the woman whose son was restored to life. And we're not being allowed to forget that, are we? Uh, this, this, is, this is an important thing for us to remember. And it's important for us to remember because in many ways... God is still at work restoring life to her. Do you notice that? Now, could we might ask the question, uh, why is this story here? It actually, it actually sticks out a little bit like a sore thumb. Uh, why not just roll it all together with her other stories uh, back, in, back in 2 Kings 4? Uh, why not put them all there? Well, what happens is we all of a sudden get a, a glimpse that God... God didn't forget her. It wasn't like God did a miracle for her and then she kind of carried on it alone. God kept restoring life for this woman. You notice that in verse verse 1? 
uh, Elisha comes to her and he says, look, there's a famine coming. Uh, I advise you and your family to go away for a while, go, go spend some time, seven years somewhere else. And so she does that. God, miraculously, amazingly through Elisha, is restoring life to her in the midst of this famine going on. Uh, then she comes back to the land of Israel. She's been gone for seven years. Her property, her house, her, her fields, her vine, vineyards, they have been taken over by other people, maybe the king himself, uh, maybe somebody else. And she comes back and she, she seeks uh, the king out. She says to him, uh, can, can I have my land back? And it just so happens to be that as she does that, Gehazi is there telling the story of what Elisha has done for her, how he raised her son to life. And the king says, sure, you can have your land back. Except that we know that when it comes to the Bible, there are no just, just happens to be, are there? There's a little code word in there, uh, if you notice that down there in verse 5. Uh, and while he, Gehazi, was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, <laughs> surprise, surprise, it's code word for this could look like a coincidence, <laughs> Um, but here are the fingerprints of God on the story. What, what's happening here? God is restoring life to her. First of all, who is her land? And now he is restoring, sorry, first of all, it's her son. Now it is restoring her land and the produce of it and all that was hers. You see, throughout, throughout, throughout kings, as we bump into this, this woman, here are these reminders that God is dealing kindly and compassionately and generously with his people. He, he's been, she's been this reminder through God's dealings with her that, that he, knows, he knows who are his own people. He knows the people that belong to him and he knows how to take care of them and he knows how to give good gifts to his people. Now why here? Why here with a sword of judgment hanging over their heads? Because he's reminding his people again that as judgment comes and as judgment falls, he knows who are his own. He knows who are his people. And he knows how to take care of them in every situation. He knows how to restore life to his people. See, sometimes we struggle, don't we? This idea, this understanding of the judgment of God. Uh, we struggle to understand uh, how God all of a sudden seems to switch from loving, kind, patient to judge. We wonder, does God, does God go into beast mode? You, you know, does he just, does he just like flick the switch and he just, rah, and then he just destroys everything in sight? Does God, does God indiscriminately throw his judgment on everyone and everything? No, he doesn't. In his judgment, he knows his own people. He knows those who are faithful to him. He knows what they need and he knows how to take care of them. God, 
God doesn't put up with death by friendly fire. God is not a carpet bomber who simply destroys everything in sight without regard for who, he, who it is and what they have done. He knows how to take care of his own. See, sometimes we might wonder when God executes his judgment on this world. When Jesus Christ comes again in all his glory, what's to happen to his people? As our world goes through the birth pains of that judgment, we're told we live in the last days, uh, that judgment will be revealed Throughout those last days, it will intensify before, before Jesus comes back. It will be completed when the King Jesus returns. How is people going to fare in that time? God knows who they are. God knows how to care for them. God knows what they need. God knows what we need. When we go through, when we go through discipline, you know, when God, when God shapes his people through hardship and difficulty, through, through discipline, God never forgets who are his own. He never drops the ball. He never takes his eye off them. He knows what they need, and he knows how to look after them. All right, let's move on from that first story, and we're going to move on uh, to the second part of that story, which starts in verse 7. And all of a sudden, we find uh, Elisha moving out of uh, Israel and moving into Syria. Now, um, Syria would not be a popular destination for a holiday today, would it? Uh, it would not be a place that you go on a day trip, uh, not a place that you go sightseeing, and neither was it in Elisha's day either. Uh, this, this is the nation who are the enemies of God's people. Uh, this is a nation that is constantly harassing God's people, attacking. They were the ones who laid siege to the city. Uh, what Elisha is doing there, uh, we may not know. Uh, he may actually just be there for this very conversation. Uh, Elisha is in Syria, and the king of Syria, a king named Ben-Hadad, who has reigned for 40 years, uh, 40 years of harassing Israel, is sick. And he is asking the question, am I going to get out of this? Uh, 40 years of reign, he's probably getting pretty old, uh, his sickness. And so he, he gets one of his servants or somebody in his palace uh, to go and inquire of Elisha. Uh, Elisha is well known in Syria. Uh, Naaman, uh, Syrian army being led into Samaria, uh, lots of stories involving them. They know who Elisha is. They know the God of Elisha. And so Ben-Hadad says, well, I'm, I'm going to find out from him. And so he sends someone from his palace to go and inquire, will I recover? And the name of that man is Haziel. Now, at this moment, alarm bells should start ringing for us. Because this is not the first time that we have heard this name. It is the second. The first time you remember the very first sermon in the series from 1 Kings 19, Elijah, not Elisha, Elijah, the predecessor, 
on the mountain. God, what are you doing? God, it's all in ruins. God, what's going to happen? God says to Elijah, go and anoint three people. Elisha, to be prophet in your place. Jehu, king of Israel, who we haven't met yet. Just tuck that one away. And Haziel, to be king over Aram. What was Haziel going to do? He was going to bring a sword against God's people. But at this point in time, uh, Haziel is quite innocent, isn't he? And quite unknowing of what is about to happen. Uh, He simply comes with 40 camel loads of goodies uh, to Elisha and says, Can you please tell me, uh, my king wants to know, uh, will he recover from his illness. Now, um, Elisha's answer gives us some difficulties um, because it appears that Elisha tells Haziel to lie to the king. Now, if you have a problem uh, with Elisha the prophet telling Haziel to lie to the king, I'm going to give you two other alternatives that you can uh, you can hang your hat on. That, that could be the first one is a textual uh, a textual alternative. I don't know what version you're reading or what footnotes you have, um, but mine says, some manuscripts say, you shall certainly not recover rather than you shall certainly recover. So there is a version of this or versions of this which change one word slightly. So it reads, you shall not recover. And so we can have our consciences clear that Elisha doesn't tell Haziel to lie to his king. Uh, The other way to view it is to see it not as a lie, but as a slight deception. Uh, Where he says to the king, um, the sickness will not kill you, but your duna cover might. Uh, Would kind of be the force of it uh, here. Uh, So he's kind of just sort of saying to him, no, it's not going to be the sickness which kills you. Uh, Whatever it is, by the end of the conversation... Uh, Hazel has the picture. Uh, This man of God has said to him that he will be king over Syria. And not not just a weak king, but a king that inflicts great pain and torture on the people of Israel. Well, Hazel, he, he... He starts off the conversation saying, who am I but a dog that things should, this should happen to me? And 24 hours later, he has embraced it fully uh, as he smothers the king to death and reigns in his place. And the promise of 1 Kings 19 is just around the corner. Uh, The sword has been unsheathed. And God is is prepared and ready to execute that judgment on his people. God has not forgotten the sin of Ahab and Jezebel. He has not forgotten the sin of Jehoram. He has not ignored the rebellion of Israel. 
His justice, His judgment is coming. It will be harsh and it will be brutal. Now, over the coming weeks, we're going to focus uh, some more on that judgment. But I want us now to go back and just notice a little interaction between Elisha and Haziel. It's there in verse 11. Elisha fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. Why does Elisha weep? Well, he goes on to say, he, he, he says, I, I, I know what you're going to do. I see what's going to happen through you. I see, I see the pain. I see that the infliction of, of harsh realities of women ripped open and men dashed to pieces and cities destroyed. I see that. But why does he weep? Because surely, surely this is what Israel deserves. Surely this is what the king deserves. Surely this judgment is just. Why does he weep? He weeps because God himself weeps as he brings this judgment on his people. <coughs> this is not the God who is sometimes loving and sometimes judging. This is not the God who sometimes acts kindly and who sometimes acts harshly. This is not like the mild-mannered father who's generally pretty placid, but if you raise his heckles enough, he will blow his top and watch out. This is the God who brings judgment with love, who brings judgment with tears. This is the God in uh, Ezekiel chapter 33. He says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked may turn back from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the God who, in Christ, weeps over the fate of Jerusalem. In Luke 23. Who says, Luke 19, who says in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This is the God who in Christ weeps at the graveside of a friend. Who weeps when he sees the results of sin and death and the curse on the world and the people that he has created. This is the God who brings judgment with love. 
who brings judgment with tears. Not the cruel, harsh tyrant who who blows his top. But the stripes, the wounds of a loving father who desires people to turn back to him. This is the love of God that we see on the cross too, isn't it? The God who brings judgment on sin. Who punishes evil. But who lays it on his own son willingly. So that the sinful and the rebellious, the wayward, the lost, can know his love to be forgiven and can be set free. This is the God who will come again. It's the rider on the white horse. Bringing judgment on his world. But longing for and calling for people to turn. To come back. To be saved. How do we live in anticipation? How do we live knowing that this judgment is to come? We've already seen that we, know, we live knowing that. We live knowing that God knows his own and he knows how to care for them. And he, he knows what they need and he knows how to look after them. Two more things I want to notice. Firstly, we live in anticipation, weeping. Weeping with God at the judgment that is to come. Weeping that this world, loved by God, will face a fire, a fire of destruction, a fire of judgment. There should be absolutely no triumphalism or joy in believers thinking about the judgment to come for others. We can can be glad... That in his judgment, God will bring an end to evil and sin and wickedness? Absolutely. But there is no sense of joy in the fate of those who do not know Jesus. Only a sense of there but for the grace of God go I. That's what I deserve. That's what I should have. But for Jesus, that judgment is mine. Sometimes uh, I read uh, stuff that Christians put on Facebook. I shouldn't do it. It makes me mad most of the time. Sometimes I get really angry at the stuff, the triumphalism of some stuff that gets put up. And the judgment on others who don't think the same, act the same, on on those who have different opinions. There's no room for it. Because we have a God who weeps 
when he knows that that judgment is coming. We have a God who mourns and calls people to return, not mocks those who are going to eternal punishment. If we don't care about those who face eternal destruction, there is something wrong. Either there's something wrong with our view of God. Maybe we, maybe we don't think he's actually going to do it. Maybe we, we think it's just a scare tactic. Or there's something wrong with our view of ourselves. That somehow we deserved his grace more than other people. A thought of God's judgment to come should drive us in compassion and in love to share the hope that we have. To be the hands and the feet of a God who says, I desire none of the wicked to perish, but to return and to live. We live in anticipation with weeping with what is to come. Thirdly and finally, uh, we live in anticipation. We live in anticipation turning to, again and again, turning to Jesus, our Savior, and trusting him. I want to take you back uh, just for a moment to something that we glossed over, and you, you noticed this because you're smart, uh, as we were going through in this passage. And that is, that is the role of King Jehoram here in this passage. Because it's different, isn't it? Um, up until this point, uh, Jehoram has had a really bad run, hasn't he? I mean, he's the bad guy in every, in every situation. Uh, he was the king last week who, who, who wanted to put Elisha's head on a platter. Uh, he was the king who, who, who blames God. He's the king who wanted to ignore the miracle that God performed in rescuing them and have his own answer for it. He's, he's, had, a, he's had a pretty bad run. But all of a sudden, he's not so bad here, is he? I mean, maybe it's the rescue. Maybe, maybe it's the, 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 the ending of the siege. So he calls Gehazi in and he says, tell me the stories of the things that Elisha has done. You know, I've seen some of the, pub, the public stuff. Tell me some of the other stories about it. Uh, this lady comes forward and she wants her land back. And he says, yeah, sure. Here, have an official. You know, he'll make sure that all, that all of it happens. This is, this is the first time that a widow's plea is answered by a king favorably since Solomon. You know, we ask the question, is he turning the corner here? Are things getting better? Well, let's put this in perspective for a moment. Uh, Jehoram uh, is the last kingly descendant of Omri, King Omri in 1 Kings. It's called the Omridi dynasty. Uh, these little verses, they are the best things that an Omridi king does. This is a high point. A king has compassion on a widow. Everything else, not so good. 
This is not enough. This is not enough to stop Haziel being anointed and the sword falling. Because God is not looking. He is not looking for a change of behavior. He is looking for a change of heart. And it isn't there. See, the wrong response to the coming judgment of God would be to say, whoa, I better pull my socks up. If Jesus is returning as judge and as king, I better smarten my act up a bit. God's not looking for a little bit of better behavior. God is calling for change of heart and change of life, change of attitude. Not a change that you and I can bring. He's looking for the change that he brings through his son and our savior Jesus on the cross. He's looking for the replacement of an old heart, a rebellious heart, a stoneful heart. With a new heart, a heart of flesh. He's looking for a change that is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. When he, when he enters our lives, He changes our focus from ourselves and our rebellion and our sin to Jesus and His work. How, how do we anticipate the coming of Christ, His return? We turn. We have a change of life. A change of heart. The change that comes through knowing Jesus. And again and again and day after day. We keep going back to the giver of life. To be at work in our lives. And to be at work in our hearts. And to change us from the inside. South Barwon. That day of judgment is coming. That day will be here. We've been living in those last days since Jesus returned to the Father. And every day we get another day closer to it. Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Younger people here. Are you ready for the day when Jesus comes back? When he comes back to gather his own to himself. And to execute eternal judgment. On all those who don't. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the change of heart? The change of life that he brings? Do you know his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy? Mums and dads, older people and single people, new people here, people who have been here all their lives. Are you ready for that day? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the change of life, the change of heart that he brings? Let's pray to him together, shall we?
uh, Lord God, we, uh, we know that it's not easy to think about uh, judgment, uh, to think about uh, the days to come when Jesus returns, uh, the fate of those who, who do not know you and do not love you. As we do so, we, we just need to say thank you. Thank you for the work of Jesus. Thank you that he took the punishment in our place. Thank you that in him, your wrath was fully satisfied. And in him, we are forgiven and belong to you forever. But Lord God, we pray for those that don't know you yet. We pray that you would hold off that day until they do. We pray, Father, that you would pour out your mercy and your love on them. Lord God, that you would be at work in their hearts. Show them the mercy and the grace of Jesus. uh, That they might know the life that he brings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.